Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out. The kind that both employees and customers love and support. In this episode, I was so lucky to connect with one of my heroes and inspiration, Henry Stewart, who is the founder and chief happiness officer of Happy which is an award-winning learning and development organization in London. Henry is also the author of the amazing book called The Happy Manifesto, a book with principles and tools on how to build organizations that have super engaged and productive workforce, a must-read for any leader. Henry explains what The Happy Manifesto is all about and what its impact an organization can be when it's been implemented. We discussed if it gives sense from a business point of view to put people first. Henry talked about how the pandemic helps have impacted them as a training company and how his team has transformed the business from offline to online in a very short time. We also talk about the kind of leadership behaviors that are needed right now and in the future. Within that, we talk about the power of self-management and how that could work in the context of hospitality. But before you tune in, why not sign up to our Maverick Community Newsletter and get great insights and leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. If you would like to have a chat with me, please book a slot on hospitalitymavericks.com. I love to talk with people on how we can build a better future. Please also join the Game Changer Facebook group if you want to be at the forefront of what progressive leaders are up to in hospitality. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. So grab headphones, coffee, notebook, and enjoy. As you know, sometimes I like to get somebody from outside the hospitality industry to have a little insight, look into our industry, and actually maybe share their, you know, gems and, and, and maverick approaches. And, and today's guest is a person I've known for a long time. I've probably known him through his book for a longer time than we did. We have known each other. We recently connected. But I used his book, The Happy Manifesto, as part of a business I was growing. And there was some leadership principle in there. We'll come back to that later. We implemented with success. And I, I feel very honored that uh, Henry Stewart from, from Happy is able to join us today to talk about how do we actually create a, a happy workplace? Because one of the things I believe is that people have changed, business have changed, organization have changed, everything is changing during the pandemic for us. And thereby, maybe this is also the time now we really make the shift and focusing on creating organizations people love to be a part and also love to buy from. So with that said, welcome to the uh, podcast, Henry. Thank you. Thank you very much. For people that doesn't know you out there and your amazing book, which I'll be very surprised, uh, there's probably not many, but there will be some. What is Happy and uh, Henry Stewart and uh, what is the Happy Manifesto all about? Okay, um, so I'm, I'm Chief Happiness Officer at Happy. We're a London-based learning provider that helps organizations create happy workplaces. And that's based on the ideas in the Happy Manifesto, which fundamentally they're about giving people freedom and trust. Because if people ask me what people don't, what people, what makes people unhappy or happy, it's, it can be different for every person. So the first answer is, first point is ask them. But what, in general, what people don't like is micromanagement, being told what to do, blame cultures. What they do like is doing something they're good at, having the freedom to decide for themselves. That's crucial. Having managers who coach them 
rather than tell them what to do, and having flexible working and a no-blame culture. Those are the kind of core elements of the Happy Manifesto, and um, they can lead to a happy workplace. And Henry, this book, what I think is fascinating, it's, 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 it's uh, built on your experience in building your training and development company and having your own team and working with them. So this is not something you 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 have just taken down from, from other books. You've actually been doing this yourself. True, how many years have you been practicing? <laughs> 33 years we've been doing this. And yes, I, I wrote that book just after we'd been uh, five years in succession in the top 20 UK workplaces. So it is very much partly based on our experience, but it's also based on some of the companies we met in those awards, the Googles, the Gores, these kinds of organizations. Because one thing I, I tried to work out was, what is it that is at the core of a happy workplace? How big is uh, happy? How many people? We're not that many. We're about 25 people um, and then about 50 associates. Yeah, because even you're small, you have had a, a mighty impact, would I say. And I, I love when organizations do this because your thinking and thoughts has been, you know, shared across. And I, I told a bit in the intro that, you know, even me, it came to me when I was in Denmark. I was trying to, you know, you know, reinvigorate an organization. And, and that was actually the reason why the soul was gone was because you're taking all the decision power away from them. They were not able to make these critical decisions, <laughs> as you say yourself. Yeah. And, and I could remember at that point, I read, I read something. It was like a PDF book I downloaded at some point. And I could remember I read something about that. And I found back to the Happy Manifesto. And now it's a book that's part of lots of the things I do and approaches to. So for people down there, we will dive into some elements of the Happy Manifesto uh, a bit later in the conversation. But it's definitely a, a book that's worth looking into. And it's real practical, hands-on leadership tools. It's not... Uh, it's not academic models in it, so, but inspired from the ac academic world. I don't know if I pitched that correctly, uh, Henry. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I read a lot of business books and they're long academic ones. They're turgid. What I love are stories. What I love are real examples of people who've done it. So that's what I've tried to put in my book. It's quite short and it's full of stories and examples that you can go away and put into practice. And it's also available for free download from our website. So uh, which I guess is what you did, um, uh, Michael. Um, so, so do feel free to go to happy.co.uk and and download it. Yeah, and I think when you've downloaded it, you will find out you need the book to make notes in because, um, yeah, it's like it. It's 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 a bit like a principles of a happy workforce. And of course, you have to. What I've learned was that uh, there's a story, and then you need to, in a way, tweak that story into your world and find out how you use that principle in in your ways. But the, the overall thinking in there is it's very implementable, which I think it's a, yeah, absolutely what has made me recommend and giving away many copies of, of this book or guided people to your website and said, download this. This will give you a great start if you are trying to transform your organization. But happiness and uh, a very happy workforce and entering the pandemic, what did that mean for, for you guys and uh, and also your clients? Oh, well, good question. Um, so we went home in March, uh, having been a classroom, been principally a classroom training provider, having basically lost all our income and wondering if we would survive as an organization. We had some dismal meetings in, in late March and early April, projecting finances forward and so on. But the team has done an amazing job. We've pivoted everything to online. 
And now we are set in October, November to get back into profit. We made a profit in July and we're, we're looking, we, we've, we've turned everything around. And how that's happened, it's, it's interesting because in the first couple of weeks, I, I, I moved back in a traditional leadership role, telling people what to do and that kind of thing. Because I thought, you know, in the crisis, you need to take action. But actually, it was disastrous. <laughs> and it was only when I stepped back and started using the happy principles again and giving people the autonomy they needed and letting people step up and take responsibility that we move forward and, and move back to, to, to being successful again. So even in a crisis, this stuff works. And that's super interesting because there's been, you know, uh, if you're on LinkedIn, there has been a, a lot of advice around, you know, uh, you need, uh, it's a battleground. You need to take the lead, as you just said. You need to be the guy in the front line, uh, taking the hits, telling them what to do. Uh, and I, I was guilty of that myself. I also jumped in and then very quickly found out that actually what I was doing, I was creating more chaos because they were not used to that. And they don't need that because they were already trained in making decisions for themselves. As soon as I pulled back, uh, they came up with better decisions or better organizational decisions than I could do as an individual. Because you only have so much brain power and energy yourself, uh, but the team together has much more. Yeah, and yeah, the team has much more. And also, they're the people in touch with the clients normally. They're the people who are talking to them every day. And they're the people that understand the need. Uh, much more than people higher up the, the chain. So you've done an amazing shift around and you're taking everything uh, online. Do you think that's 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 now how you're going to be delivering training, workshops, consultancy as you're going forward? Uh, are, are, is, is the classroom coming back at some point when uh, we all feel safe again and there's uh, not a pandemic roaring in the same level as it is now? Well, that's that's a really good question. It certainly will be the case for the next six months. And we're in an interesting position because we've got a training centre costing us a quarter of a million pounds that is completely unused at the moment. So do we keep it or do we not? Now, we've started asking our clients, um, do they prefer online or classroom? And it's an interesting result. About about 60% are saying they're neutral between them. And then there's it's about evenly split, 20% each way. So I'm I think for some clients, the classroom will come back, but it's likely to be well under half of uh, what it was before and of course online is great because i you know we can involve anybody around the world there's no travel costs we can we've had people on from kenya from nigeria from kazakhstan and coming to our our training sessions it's been fabulous yeah so your market in principle have suddenly increased uh, overnight but the crucial thing the crucial thing is is because we understood learning to start with, we understood how to make online learning interactive. Now, there's a report by, by GoTo, who's a webinar provider this, this week, saying that people are only paying attention for 29% of the time in training webinars, you know, which is pretty good because they've actually measured how much time they're doing something else at the same time. And that's pretty shocking, really. Um, and I've been to those kind of webinars where you just, which, which, where you just listen, hear people speaking and there's no interaction, there's no engagement. What you need is engagement all the time. You need breakouts, you need polls, you need active, active use of the chat so that people are actively engaged. So uh, we, we run sessions on those as well. But, you know, we've really transformed some organizations in their delivery and how they, how they um, get people actively involved. 
And that's what you need. You know, I'm sick of those those lecture style webinars, which uh, you, you might as well be listening to to a podcast or a TED talk. You know, which that's which uh, which can be fabulous. You know, like this one. But um, uh, but there's no it, there's no point in going to a training event where there's no interaction. Very interesting because it's uh, you know one thing is saying that we take everything online. It's another thing is making it actually you know engaging and active that goes from everything from zoom meetings to whatever because i think we all have had our fair share of zoom meeting or online meeting the last uh, seven months and uh, you know that's also now that's where you know there has to you know there has to be some you know fun elements of that you need to use different things to you know get people engaged in those meetings you need to make them shorter more effective because they're very draining for people to you know that screen time as well uh, compared to being a face-to-face, so yeah, it's an interesting. They can be, but they don't have to be, and that's the key. That's the key point. So we've held full-day events with over 100 people, where people have their feeling like saying, "I feel so energized and so inspired." And in fact, the feedback from those events has been has rated more engaging than our our real-life event. The key to that there's there's something we use called liberating structures. I don't, do you know about liberating structures? No, tell us a bit more about that. Okay, have you? Do you ever go to events or meetings or things where it's dominated by one or two people? Yeah. Liberating structures are 33 methods to that by their very structure, give everybody an equal voice. And that is crucial because Google did some research and it's called Project Aristotle and found that what makes teams effective is psychological safety and an equal voice. Not the highest paid person um, uh, dominating, um, not, you know, one or two macho types dominating, but giving everyone an equal voice. So let me give you one, one of the 33 structures is called one, two, four, all. And in that you pose a question, you pose a prompt or an, an issue, and you get people to reflect for one minute, then go into pairs in a breakout for two minutes, then combine into fours for four minutes, and then come back and put an, online, put all their or what they've come up with in, into chat and then have a discussion. And what that, that means is that every single person in that, whether it's two people or whether it's 200, every single person has had the chance to talk and express their views and come up with, with a viewpoint. That's crucial. Uh, that, uh, that's crucial in making organizations effective, that you don't have these dull, boring meetings dominated by one or two people, but you have meetings which people look forward to because they know they're going to get to speak. And they know they're going to get to, to think and discuss the ideas. Very critical thing you said that it's like you you know you're going to be heard. You are not going to be uh, you're not going to be uh, pushed from above for somebody with a higher salary or more status than you. That everybody's equal in those conversations. I, that's and I love the slogan: "Beware of hippos." Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what that means? <laughs> tell, tell us a bit more. I, I know what it means, but maybe people out there it would it, it'd be very good for them. I think it was originally a Google slogan. So a hippo is the highest paid person's opinion. And in too many organizations, once the highest paid person gives their opinion, that's what you go with. So beware of hippos, because as I said earlier, the hippos, the highest paid people, are often furthest from the front line. You're absolutely spot on because, uh, as you said earlier, it's the front line that actually has the most and deepest knowledge about what's going on at the customers, but also with many, many, many other things. Absolutely. You pivot. There's a lot going on in the world, a lot of uncertainty. What has been the biggest surprise for you in all this as a leader of your business, uh, your customers and in general in the world? What has been like something where you said, wow, I hadn't seen that? (laughs) 
Well, you tell me not to be political, Michael, but um, I think the biggest surprise has been the total incompetence of our government in the UK, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> the fact that they can't get anything working, the fact they can't get track and trace working. That, you know. I think uh, what you're saying is that uh, their organizational power is, is it's, it's very low. There's something not working here in a way when we talk about happy workplace. That's for sure. Absolutely. A lot of it is about centralization. You know, if... You know, for instance, if the tracker trace, instead of being privatized and outsourced to a centralized system, had been put out to local authorities and been put out to to people who know the and understand the locality, that's the same as as what I'm talking about, you know. But they haven't, and it's been a disaster. It's it's amazing. I'm going to be political, Michael. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing fine. how this government, this immediate reaction to anything is privatization, privatize it. But it never works. It didn't work with, you know. It didn't work with um, uh, with anything they've tried it with, um, but still, it's, they go back to it. Oh, let's privatize it. Um, some once once sometimes somebody's going to spot. Maybe we should try something that works. The interesting thing, us, you know, we we this podcast we represent, you know, the hospitality industry, and uh, it's definitely uh, also a very you know, screwed picture across the sector and uh, disbelief and distrust in uh, what's going on because they feel a bit they've been, uh, you know, as an industry has been, you know, shafted a bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Been being burned down on the compromise of uh, not want to take leadership uh, on this situation. And that's been seven months to put a plan in place and, and there's, there's nothing in place when then the second wave came. So, so yeah, so it's, it's it, it is definitely something that is on, uh, you know, uh, the industry's mind and uh, frustration as they try to save the last pieces. And again, you know, yeah, I think Danny Meyer is one of the, you know, uh, most, uh, known people leader first in New York. And he said when, uh, when the the first part of pandemic, how do you put people first when you have to uh, fire them, lay them off, make them redundant? How can you put people first? And I think that's the challenge we have as an, an industry right now. That's an interesting, and and it's forced by you know um, either late or no uh, no government uh, interaction. So go- politics cannot be uh, you know untouched in these times. Even though I said to it, let's not uh, get too political uh but yeah you're absolutely right and, and that has you know i think it surprised many people out there well we take this uh you know pandemic and we we take you know all the factors politics we can impact out we we stand there and looking at you know the world have changed people have changed business are changing organizations uh, are changing i think even politics are changing very fast on the back ends that we just come from uh, but what kind of leadership behaviors are needed more than ever right now Exactly the same leadership behaviours as were needed before, but weren't often practised. So to, to explain a bit more about the whole philosophy, it's about leaders setting up the framework and getting out of the way. And I mean, some of the most exciting organisations around at the moment are self-managing. Take Burtzorg in, in the Netherlands, which is a care organisation, which four nurses set up in 2006 because they wanted to use their own uh, vocation and use decide for themselves what care people got, rather than some expert plotting when they went where. There are now 15,000 nurses in Burtzog, and they're organising teams of 10 to 12, and they haven't had a management meeting in 15 years between the entire organisation. They do have a chief exec, and they have a head office of 50 people, and then they organise around teams of 10 to 12. That has caused a huge savings in overhead as well as incredible 
customer delight in uh, among the the, the the patients and uh been the best place to work in the netherlands for, for five and uh, five times um and i i do something similar in that three years ago happy actually wasn't doing that well um we parted company with somebody who perhaps didn't fully follow the philosophy and what you might what i might have done was get involved and get things back on track and whatever but i decided i would actually step back Influenced by a guy called David Marquet, who was a U.S. submarine commander, um, I decided to make no decisions. Turn around your ship. That's right. Turn around ship. Yeah. He he took over a ship which he had no uh, training for because he'd been switched to a different ship, and he decided to make that he would make no decision. Instead, he would give people intent and coach and support them. And that ship went from a, a poorly performing submarine to the best performing submarine in U.S. Navy history. And at Happy, we'd been flatlining for two or three years. I stepped back. I decided to make no decisions. People stepped up and took responsibility and ownership. And for, for we had three years of 25% growth leading up, up to, to the pandemic because people were taking ownership. And that's, that's what you need. There's, there's a woman called Liz Wiseman who I, I think does, has written a great book called Multipliers, who makes clear that. Managers who are diminishers, who lessen the ability of their people, feel they have to be involved in everything. In every decision, they need to be there. Managers who are multipliers, who multiply the talents of their people, believe people can work it out for themselves with support, but believe that, 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 that trust their people to come up with the right decision. So that's what I've certainly sought to do, particularly over the last three years, uh, is, is create self-managing teams. because. They are, I think, the future, Michael. They are uh, what is bubbling up and coming along. The old style of the manager and the leader as expert telling people what to do is long gone or should be long gone. What instead you need is, is a manager who coaches and supports their people. Yeah, and I guess it becomes much more the role of like a coach in a sports team. I know that analogy has been used for years, but not really practice. But you talk about your coach and your I'm coaching my team, but you're not really doing that before you let them play their game in a way. And what you do is give them the overview, give them help them closing their gaps, let them perform at their best. And I think you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think already this was coming pre-pandemic. There's a there's already been, you know, a lot of books coming out on different ways to do organizations. You have a corporate rebel, you have rethinking organizations as well, a turn around the ship, good to great touches on this as well. Some of the best performing organization over time, like Southwest Airlines, where the decision power is also way out in the front line and very few managers, very few layers of managers involve um but do you think like if we take hospitality and you know self-management because i've been talking with people about it and people are always very skeptic about this so the question is also who's then going to take over when it goes wrong and who is responsible do you think this could be implemented in the hospitality business because as a industry or the way we build these restaurant empires when they're really big it's often very top down the the cleverest person the hippo is the one that takes the best decision. Well, that that's really interesting. Um, I'm I'm just racking my brain to think of hospitality companies that that do this. Um, and the nearest I could come to, I was speaking at a at a conference in Lisbon about three years ago, and there's actually someone from McDonald's there who said that they had changed their whole way of working so that the manager 
was no longer the one who told people what to do, but was the coach that supported people. And he said a lot of the managers were having real difficulty with this approach. And I don't know if this was just McDonald's Portugal or whether, whether it spread anywhere else. But he said that to changing from that top down to supporting the people had really transformed the, the, the way the organisation was working. Um, yes, I think absolutely hospitality. Hospitality is a tremendously dynamic industry. And uh, obviously, the, 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 the front of house staff are the ones that, that get to see the customers and know what they're, they're like and what they want. And yes, absolutely, that's where you should be able to step back and let people get on with it. Yeah, because it's super interesting um, because I practiced this, you know, uh, I didn't call it self-management, but I practice, you know, uh, the thoughts from your books, good to great. And uh, we grew very fast and suddenly we were at that keel of, um, we're losing a bit of control, we felt. So we felt we had to go in and take more control. So we we did the opposite of what we'd done. We suddenly we went out in the front line again and took took the leadership and uh, the problem was we we lost when we have lost a couple of our good people we understood we're doing something that's very detrimental for this organization we're actually killing it uh, and then we went back and then we made them into a bit like birdsock uh, i didn't know the story about birdsock at that point but we gave them you know their own budget they could, we gave them a number of tools they could take the tools they want to use to work for them in their business and uh, and we created uh, three groups or the three most experienced people we have. One of them, we all got a, a cluster of restaurants and we coached them. We coached them to become, uh, I wouldn't call them leadership team, but as support teams, we called them to run this place. And of course, of course, some of them went better than others. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. But the one that went really well, the, the customer service tracking numbers and the... Uh, the, the performance number financially had never been better and then came up with solution to their own problem suddenly. Suddenly there was no one calling the, the ops director, which was me, which was great. <laughs> it solved a lot of headache in my life as well. For, for and of course, you can learn from each other because what happens at Birdstock is that, that all, the, all the ratings, because they have particular metrics they have to meet, are published for the whole you know, thousand teams or so. But it isn't so they can beat up on people. It's so that those in the weaker teams can go and talk to those in the better teams and find out what's happening different, you know. Um, the same thing happens in Handelsbanken, um, which you probably know from Ben Markets, Swedish, yeah. where each branch, you know, it's the same thing. They're, they're, they're fully autonomous, and but there's a certain set of metrics um, and they measure themselves against the metrics thing, and they go and talk to the people who've got the best metrics, learning from the best. Yeah, and I think you're right. This is a it's a thing that is starting to come, and you will see uh, you see that you know if you can get it to work across the world. So the corporate rebel have been very good at traveling around the world and founding the best case study on this, and they've been in China and you know massive companies out there practicing this in the US, Europe. They've been everywhere, Brazil as well, and. Uh, and it's not only in small companies this can happen, but it can happen in very big companies. But you have to break them down to smaller units. And I think that's the key thing. Uh, you have to have smaller teams that are more self, self-providing, self but all working for the bigger purpose of the organization. I guess purpose becomes extremely important to be able to do this, uh, Henry. It does, because when I talk about freedom, I actually talk about freedom within guidelines. Because actually, if you ask people, I give people three options. Do you want to be told what to do, complete freedom, or freedom within guidelines? 
Now, there's a few anarchists who like complete freedom, but there's not many, actually. About 90% of people, I've done this with thousands of people at conferences, um, uh, say that give us the framework, give us the guidelines we're working within, and then give us the freedom within this. So yes, part of that is the purpose of the organization. Part of that is the values. So we have some key values. Um, and if anybody is, you know, unhappy, I, I feel they're not doing the right thing, I often ask them, you know, uh, how does this fit with delighting the customer? How does this fit with believing the best or celebrating mistakes, um, which are, you know, our, uh, some of our, our core values? So, yeah, it's very much is freedom within. It's not just saying do whatever you feel like, right? It's about it's about uh, having a clear purpose and clear clear guidelines, and then giving people freedom to make their own decisions within that. That's super interesting. We're saying that because that's also been my experience. The you know the organizations I touch base with, and uh, they're doing really well. Uh, they often have what I call. Uh, a book or a framework of uh, their beliefs and behaviors, also called values or culture. This is how we do things here. Uh, and that can be for small organization to big organization, but they are able to articulate the, the, the principles of how we make decisions. And when you have them clearly written and everybody has been part of writing them, so from the front line into the back office to the hippo, everybody has been part of this process. Everybody buys into that. And, and decision-making becomes absolutely much clearer. Uh, and I think that that's a wonderful thing to see because you, you're all walking past the same banner with the same purpose, but you are getting to it in different ways, but with no compromise on the, uh, the bottom line or the customer experience. And let's say a little bit about, about decision-making because some people think, well, if the manager isn't making the decisions, it must be, or it must take ages to reach consensus. And a key point about, self-managing organizations is consensus isn't what you're aiming for, right? Um, what you're aiming for is ownership and responsibility. So ideally, each aspect of the business is owned by somebody. It doesn't need to be a senior person. It can be someone absolutely on the front line. So give me, I'll give you an example from Happy. A couple of years ago, uh, uh, two of my colleagues, Ben and John, who are frontline staff, decided they wanted to change the pricing. Now, obviously, pricing is a big thing in a business. You'd expect it to go to the senior managers. But no, the, the idea is they use what's called the advice process. They, 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 go to, they talk to clients. They talk to the other colleagues around the business. They get advice. And then they make the decision. And I actually didn't agree with the decision, the, the pricing they were set. But they had taken responsibility. They were taking ownership. And they made that decision and, and changed the pricing. And just imagine if in your organization, you every part of it, there was somebody simply responsible for an owning. It makes uh, a huge difference to people's sense of, of well, of ownership in the, in the organization. And uh, how, how did you actually feel in that moment? Because I know like pricing is a very, you know, often goes, it's often a CEO decision or chief marketing officer decision in, in, in let's say in a big context but that's normally where the decision falls how, how did you feel just in the moment when that happened did you need to hold you hold yourself back i did need to hold myself back i felt a bit nervous uh of what they were doing but um it, it seemed to work i'll give you another example so we uh we talk about pre-approval right um that's a big thing in the book as you as, as you know michael that uh, too often people are given i asked to go and find a solution to an idea or a problem and come back um, and have it approved, often with changes. 
So um, the 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 examples I give in the book, there's there's one of uh, somebody who ran our cafe, who wanted to improve the cafe. She was 19 years old, um, and what we didn't do was say show us a plan and we'll we'll think about it, or we didn't form a committee. What we did do with her was agree the budget and check she understood the looks uh, and feel of the organisation. And I saw it for the first time when it when she'd done it, when she'd completed the cafe. And I thought it looked great. But more importantly, how do you think that 19-year-old, three months into her first job, but walking into her cafe every day? She must have felt like uh, this was her own cafe. And uh, and she wanted, you know, almost, you know, to put her life in to get that right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it wasn't her cafe, but her manager just did this, that and the other. And so it was her cafe. Um Another example is is our website. Again, this is one where I had to hold myself back because, like our website, again, you know, we only we don't have salespeople. We only get business from our website or from word of mouth. And I'd in the early days been very involved in the website, doing saying we should have this and that and take this off and maybe we should have have this. And so the person in charge of the website didn't really feel in charge of the website. So this time round, we decided we would pre-approve it. Now that, as I say, doesn't mean free total freedom. You know, we had a branding exercise so the look and feel was clear. We agreed the metrics, how many people visited and how much income it generated. They went on the best search engine optimization training we could find. And we also insisted, as part of the guidelines, they'd be talking to the customer. We didn't need to know what the customer was saying. You didn't need to hear that. But we need to know that they were having that dialogue. And when I saw that website the night before it launched, too late for it to change, it went up or it didn't, I didn't actually like it that much. Right, it was com- but it was completely within the guidelines. So up it went, and when we got the metrics uh, a couple of months later, visitors had trebled and income had doubled, even without the benefit of my expertise. So yeah, so you you have nothing to say then, and that's the beauty of it. it it's all done. Yeah, I I you know as founder and entrepreneur and whatever in the early days, I thought I knew everything. You know, I was the best person to decide on anything. I was so clever. Um, over the 32 years, I've become aware that, that that's not the case <laughs> um, and that I'm better off doing some things I'm really good at and leaving most things to the people who are good at it themselves. Yeah, and I guess your job is to find those people and get them on board. That's your... Absolutely. But more than that, it is to spot their talent once they're on board. So we recruit to a job description and then we throw it away because we want to find out what this person's actual talent is. So, for instance, we have teams with group job descriptions and every six months or so they might throw the jobs in the air, put them in post-its on the wall and work out what they're going to do, who's, which one plays to which person's strength and who should do it in the, for the next six months. Interesting. Interesting. And that's something they do on their own in the groups. That's not something you are involved in as a CEO at all. Yeah, no, I'm not involved at all in that. They do it on their own. Now, the the, the, the finance person generally still gets to do nominal ledger because that's that's what they're good at. But other things get moved around. If you take, you know, what we talked about, you know, self-management, uh, there's, there's some new leadership behaviors that really needs to come into place, give permission to operate. If you look at uh, you know CEOs, MDs, founders right now, what do you think their their biggest challenge is? A lot of people will say cash flow, the pandemic, and so on. But what is your view on that? <laughs> I remember going to uh, the, I think this was back in two thousand, a, a meeting of a startup where somebody said, asked, there was a panel, and they said, 
what's the most important person to get on board? And somebody said the lawyer. And I thought, what total nonsense, you know, to get the contracts right or something. Um, uh, our contracts are one paragraph. <laughs> That's all we do. Um, and anybody who does much longer than that, I would ask you, why? Are you going to sue your customer? Um, what the most important challenge is to fully use the, the talents of your people, right? Because in most organizations, they are massively underused. Gallup has asked a million people, do you get to do what you are best at every day? And Michael, do you know what percentage say yes to that? Take a guess. What percentage say yes, every day I get to do what I am best at? I, th I think I have read that at some point, but is it between 13 and 17% or something? Hang like that? on, it's 17%. One in six. Uh, but what they also find is that where organizations do set up people to play to their strengths and get to do what they're best at every day, they're 30 to 40% more productive. So that is the fundamental need in any organization. Use your people's talents. So never mind the cash flow, never mind the contracts, never mind all of that. Are you using your people's talents? And do you have managers who, who, are, who don't think they're the expert, who think that their role is to, is to enable people's talents? Or do you not have managers at all, which is even better? Yeah, and I, I guess that's, you know, especially now where you, you have some people on your team and it's so important that, you know, every minute uh, your people spend on something, they spend it on what they're best at in this situation. Yes. Because... Because it will have more benefit than just getting the job done better and quicker and faster. It will also make them feel, you know, very uh, engaged and uh, empowered through a very difficult time. Which it's, it's probably for many is going to be the biggest challenge to keep people's energy and mood up as a leader as well. Absolutely. And that's the core. When you're doing what you're great at, you love it. It, 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 it gives you a, a passion for it. Uh, when you're doing things, I mean, think about everybody. Think about what is it you absolutely love doing, and what is it you really hate and, and put off? Because that's where you start to look at what what your strengths are, what what you're what you're great at, and that's what you need to be doing. We can quickly uh, agree on these things, uh, Henry, because we, we're both very passionate about, uh, and and I can hear we read the, the same books and thinkers and so on. And and practice this and seen it work in in and and also have you know experience what's challenge about it, but uh, you know uh, as the finance director often asks, does this actually give business sense? You know when can I measure this? Total, total. So there's so much research on this. There's a guy called Alex Edmonds from uh, who was at um, Wharton Business School who decided to look at the best places to work, and he found that. He looked to use the stock market metric as the price. Do the best places to work perform better? That was his question. And he found that if you'd invested in the, in the standard stock market and at the end of 25 years, say your pension was worth $100,000, if you'd invested in the best workplaces, it would have been worth $236,000. That's the hard financial difference. And I've seen that with some of our clients. There's, a, there's a, a telecoms company called Macquarie, which decided to go down the route for happy workplaces using happy. and they found their, their sales went up, their profits went up, their net promoter score, which is a measure of customer satisfaction, went from minus 60 to plus 60, and their share price tripled in three years. Um, there's another company in, in called Redico, which went, which you read the Happy Manifesto, sent their people on our coaching courses, moved to self-managing organizations, and their sales went up 46%. Um, this is the effect that you can have 
when you get the bureaucracy out of the way, when you let the manager step back and you enable the ability of your people. And often they will do better than the, the direction you have given them. That's often my, you know, your your playbook is often pulled apart, as you've said yourself a couple of times, your playbook was pulled apart. And they invent a playbook that's much better because because they uh, don't overthink it. They don't think, what will my boss say about this when he see it? Uh, because I've been in both organizations where you had very big as an employee, be very big uh, room to operate, and then in other organization where you had to play play along the playbook and and the politics and the outcomes often was all always a mediocre or you know very poor in a way. They didn't and they never last those kind of playbooks. And can I say something on that? Because yeah, because yeah, um, one of the courses we teach is is enabling change, and we do it with charities and we do it with corporates and. We we presumed originally the main bit about enabling change was enabling change in society. But what we discovered was that most people, it was about about, you know, 90 percent of their work wasn't in out there on the front line. It was in persuading their organization to do stuff. But if you can get rid of all that internal decision making and just devote all that energy and passion to actually getting stuff out there in the real world. Yeah, you think you're saying something interesting here because, you know, unfortunately what we see in the, the hospitality industry is that, you know, as uh, some uh, businesses have grown very fast, they put in, you know, management structures, but these structures have disappeared through the pandemic because of a cost point of view and a survival point of view. And I guess that's where, you know, self-management or permission to operate, call it what you want, uh, becomes extremely important as they, you know, uh, come up from the ashes and maybe rethink that whole way of doing and running their business. Uh, and I think you you are spot on there, and you I think you will will see that happen. Uh, but hospitality ca- can also be in some cases top down. Yeah, and the crucial thing here is is to think about that. What is if you have a manager, what is their role? And Google did some really interesting research on this. Google Project Oxygen. You can look it up. Uh, they looked for the most important behaviors of managers. And being Google, they looked at the data extensively. And they found eight positive behaviors of managers. But most importantly, the top three, get, any guess what the top one might have been, Michael? Uh, because I read your book, I think I know what it is. It's making people uh, feel good about themselves. Uh, yeah, well, that's pretty close. What, what it is, is that third, it was express interest in your people. Second was empower, don't micromanage. And first, the single most important behavior of a manager is to be a good coach. And being a good coach is is doing what you've just said, building people's confidence and making them feel good. And it's also about helping them find their own solutions. So that that is the modern role of the manager. Stop thinking you're there to tell people what to do. You're there to uh, help them find their own solution. And there's a little example I sometimes I'm give here, which is, as I say, I don't tend to to tell people what to do, but let's say I've got Nikki who's been with us 20 years and Fred has been with us two weeks. Which one am I more likely to tell what to do? The new one, I guess. No, 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 no. Because basically, uh, if I tell Nikki what to do, she'll either, she'll think about it, she won't do it if it's stupid, right? Um, so we might have an, a brainstorm, we might talk, uh, you know, whereas with Fred, if I tell him something to do, he'll do it even if it's ridiculous. What you've got to understand is the parent-adult-child relationship that you have in companies. Okay, good old transactional analysis. With Nikki, I've got an adult-adult relationship. We can have that banter. We can have that talk. With Fred, I've almost certainly got a parent-child relationship. And I've got to shift that to adult-adult 
And I don't do that by telling him what to do. I do that by asking him questions and helping him develop his thinking and come to his own solutions. And I guess, especially when we are under the pressure we are now as business leader, that's where we sometimes just want to jump to the parent role and tell what to do because, uh, you know, I'm running out of time. There's a new call, there's a new meeting. But actually, if you take that time, over time, you will see you get all that time you need in multipliers back. That's it, absolutely. Telling people what to do is quicker in the short term, but it's not quicker in the long term. And I guess it's now or never you should practice this as we uh, go in, in into a, a new world as a leader, that skill. And th- this has re- been really interesting over the last six months because actually as people have had to uh, work from home, you know, you can't, uh, you, you as a manager can't watch over them, can you? Um, so what people have been finding in most cases is more trust and freedom. Take, uh, take the NHS. We're working with uh, Barking Havering Trust and I was in there and one of the nurses said, um, they told we had to move the entire obstetrics ward in one day. And we did it. And the role of the, the, the directors and the chief executives saw for themselves was no longer to be approving things, no longer to be uh, man, doing that kind of thing. But instead, they were there to support. Whatever people wanted to do, they were there to support it. And their phrase is no going back. No going back to the old ways of hierarchy and uh, and permissions, because they've seen what can be achieved if you give frontline staff full responsibility. The NHS could not have responded in the way it did if it was if 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 they'd had to go through all the hierarchies and the and the bureaucracy. But the challenge is to do the no going back, because actually I know many uh, many organisations who are going back to the old hierarchies. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's like the, the default, like skiing. If you get out of control, you you go backwards on your skiing to to get the balance again. So it's easier to just to to instead of learning how to be in the front of your skis, just lean back again. So uh, you've seen uh, people stepping up during the pandemic, uh, helping the uh, the frontline employees in the health system. Uh, you've seen people. Uh, taking uh, hotels, taking in homeless people and so on, and, and being very helpful and very, you know, caring almost to a level you normally wouldn't see. Uh, do you think that's going to play into the way, you know, businesses act with community and the world as we go forward? They will do more than just being a business. I know some businesses already did that before the pandemic, but we see see more businesses get involved in solving real big world problems and community problems. I hope so. I hope they will. I, and particularly on a local level, because I'm not a believer in business knows best to can sort out charities and can sort out uh, the public sector, because actually all the evidence is that businesses may be good at what they do, but they're not very good when they get into the public realm and uh, are not very good. You know, this, this myth that, oh, they know best. So, yes, businesses, I'm hoping, will be much more actively involved in their community. Stop thinking that you've got all the answers because you haven't. No, I guess it's also more about actually playing that role that society needs and that, you know, power, energy, insights, skills that sometimes are needed to solve uh, some of the big problems in the world. That's actually, it's a normal part of what you do as a business. Possibly, but let's remember there's as much skill and as much insight and as much passion in charities and even in the public sector. And you need them all to be working together. Um, because I've seen so many business people who think they know best, um, they can solve all the world's problems, and normally they can't, as we see in track and trace. <laughs> yeah, track and trace is a, is a good example of, though. they'll probably be better if that's been done from the bottom up, 
from the bottom up and from the locality, absolutely. Do you think then that you know, like uh, you know, we have a lot of global businesses today? Would you do you think there's going to be more smaller businesses in the in the new world than we we know of global big businesses today? Would you think that uh, we're going to have less globals and lots of small organizations uh, instead? It would be it would be very nice, Michael, but no, I don't. <laughs> Because to be honest with you, the companies that have that have have been found it easiest to cope with the pandemic are the big companies who've got the big reserves and so on and the companies that have found it hardest are the are the small companies who haven't got so so many reserves so i think there might even be a concentration of power after the pandemic because i don't see amazon or google or these kind of companies uh, getting any smaller no i guess they become multiplied during the the last seven months In the end of the uh, the podcast, Henry, we always ask the guests to give like three advice to leaders out there that that's looking for ways to bounce back or just the way forward in all that and trying to create the the new the new paradigm or the new now, as some people call. It. What is your top three advice to uh, to leaders out there? It's very much about not going back to the old ways. It is about no going back. It's about it's about in using this opportunity to change the way your workplace uh, uh, works so that it is based on trust and freedom. Um, so what I always, the, the, the three things I always recommend to people is that they ensure that people are doing what they're good at, playing to their strengths, that they have the trust and freedom within guidelines to, to make their own decisions and decide for themselves, and that the role of the manager is to coach, not to tell people what to do. That's absolutely very concise and super uh, inspiration. I guess also these answers can be found in your book, as we talked about earlier, because I can recognize some of that. Uh, if people want to know more about Happy and uh, you, Henry, where where do they go and uh, look up information? Okay. Well, first of all, you can connect to me on LinkedIn. If you say you've come from here, I will connect back to you. Um, uh, read the book and go to happy.co.uk and you can find about, out about all our fabulous courses, whether it's our, our four-day leadership program, which has transformed organizations, or simply how to make Zoom and Teams more interactive and more fun. Great, uh, Henry. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time to uh, give us a bit of a you know a roadmap of how we create some uh, happy workplaces as as the main ingredients for a better future for for the lot of people that works in organization. A pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much, Henry. Some great advice on how to build a people-first organization that people love to work and buy from. If you want to get inspired more about how to build happiness in the workplace, please also check out episode 34, Love It or Leave It, Creating Workplace Happiness with Samantha Clark, happiness consultant, author, and founder of the Growth and Happiness School. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share it, rate, or subscribe to one of our channels. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. Please also join the Game Changer Facebook group if you want to be in the forefront of our progressive leaders up to in hospitality. There will be links in the show notes to everything. So thank you for listening and be maverick.